Good morning, friends. I'm Pastor Brandon. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Genesis 22 as we start our Advent series uh, this weekend. Uh, what we're calling Searching for a Savior. Uh, in the chaotic world that we live in, it is absolutely impossible to escape our sense of need for a Savior. Even if we're not particularly religious, we're always looking for something or someone to fix us or to fill us or to get us out of a bind. Uh, and sometimes maybe, maybe some of us prefer to be that Savior ourselves. You know, we don't need anybody else. We can do this on our own, which works until it doesn't. And we run out of runway and we end up looking up, looking around, looking out for something, someone to rescue us from our circumstances, whatever those circumstances might be, whether it's with chronic pain or, or disease, whether it's uh, disappointment or failure, loneliness, isolation, rejection, fear, or any way that we feel the darkness of this fallen world pressing in against us, we know, even if we can pretend the rest of the time. We know in that moment we cannot do this on our own. And so we search for a savior, which ironically enough is exactly where we need to be as we enter the Advent season. Feeling our need and fueling our longing for God to step into his world and to act. In fact, Advent invites us into a deeper and more ancient story of longing and waiting, the, the story of God's people, ancient Israel, and their search for a Savior. As we've been working our way through John's gospel prior to this weekend, uh, we've seen evidence of that ancient longing and searching in virtually every story that we've encountered uh, if you were part of the Advent class down the hall, Pastor Josh talked about that this morning. We've seen people hungry and waiting for God to show up and to deliver them, whether from their sin or from their disease or from their oppression. Uh, we've seen this eager hope for God to fulfill his promise to set his anointed king on the throne of David, who will make everything right, who will rescue God's people, who will bring God's blessing. And yet, we've also seen in John's gospel that when God's king finally shows up, they didn't always recognize him, right? God answered their longing, and yet they continued their searching. They were still looking for something else. The most tragic among them being the Jewish leaders who knew well the scriptures of Israel and the promises of God and yet failed to see their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Last week we saw Jesus address this very thing in John 5, 39 to 40. He said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. God has answered our longing in Jesus. Our search for a Savior ought to always lead us to Him. But sometimes we keep looking anyway. We look around. We look out. We look within. We look at our friends. We look at our phones. We look in the fridge. 
We look at our portfolio, at our billfold. We keep looking, searching for someone or something that we know we need, but not trusting God to provide what He promises. But God does provide all that He promises, and He has done so preeminently through His Son. And one of the ways that we can strengthen our faith and focus our longing on Him is by taking up this story of Israel's longing and expectation at Advent, but to not miss what the Jewish leaders missed when they encountered Christ. Jesus went on to say to them in John 5, 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. According to Jesus himself, he is the centerpiece of Israel's scripture, such that even Moses, who gave us the first five books of the Old Testament, what we sometimes call the Torah or the law of Moses, even Moses wrote about Jesus. That's a pretty remarkable claim, that Moses, some 1,500 years before Jesus was born, that Moses wrote about Christ. It's a remarkable claim and an amazing buttress for our faith. And so what we're going to do today and for the next few Sundays during Advent is to look at a selection from each of the five books of Moses, from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, to see for ourselves what Christ talks about, to take up Israel's waiting and expectation, and to see how Moses wrote about our Savior. Our search for a Savior ought always lead to Jesus. And we'll start today with Genesis 22 and the son of Abraham. Now, as, as Pastor Robin read that a moment ago, we are clearly jumping into a story that's been going on for a bit, right? A story of one of the most important figures in the Old Testament, a man named Abraham. And Abraham is important for a number of reasons, but not least because it is through Abraham that God promised to bless all nations of the earth. So Genesis begins with the story of creation, right? With God's vision for life and blessing in his world, in his presence. A, a, a vision that's pretty quickly corrupted through human sin and rebellion, where that, that blessing gets replaced with a curse and that sin separates humanity from God. And yet it is a vision that God remains ardently committed to. He is going to reclaim his broken creation, to restore his vision for his fallen world. And the way he's ultimately going to do that is through this promise he makes to a man named Abraham. And so God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and you, I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When you think about the scope of God's promise to Abraham, all families of the earth shall be blessed. The blessings of God, his, his promise of salvation 
to all nations will be accomplished through Abraham and his descendants. But for that to happen, Abraham has to have descendants. And one of the first things we learn about him in his story, clear back in Genesis 11, is that his wife Sarah is barren, that she cannot have children. And so, so much of the story of Abraham and God's promise is, is kind of watching and waiting to see if God will keep his promise to give Abraham a son through whom he can become this great nation in order to bless all peoples of the earth. And, and as you kind of read through that story, you find places where, where Abraham and Sarah feel like they've got to take matters into their own hands. They sometimes uh, find themselves doubting whether God's actually going to come through. But eventually, when you get to chapter 21, God finally answers their longing and provides them with a son. Even in their old, old age, he gives them a son, and they name him Isaac. All of that sets us up for the story that we encounter in chapter 22, which begins with an unimaginable test. So if you look again at verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said to him, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, if you're reading through the Genesis story, kind of following along on what God is promising and how he's acting and working, all of a sudden, this is the part where, where the record scratch happens and everything comes to a stop. Like, this just seems to completely undo everything we spent the last 10 chapters waiting for and looking ahead to. What did, what did he just say? I mean, take your son, so that that son that you are you've been looking for, the son I just finally gave you, your only son, the only one who can fulfill the promise, the only one through whom it can go forward. Ishmael doesn't count. He was not Sarah's son. Only Isaac counts. Whom you love, the son that you would do anything for, whom you treasure deeply, and offer him as a burnt offering. Kill your son as a sacrifice to God. How does any of that make sense? I mean, why would God ask Abraham to do something that he forbids all people from doing? Like there were, there were, there were pagan nations in the ancient world that would do this kind of child sacrifice thing, but God always and consistently prohibits it throughout all of Scripture. So why would he ask Abraham to do it? And why would he ask him to do it with, with someone he loves so dearly and has waited so long to receive. This just doesn't make sense. And why would he ask him to give up the very means of fulfilling his great promise to bless all nations through him? When you stop and think about it, without Isaac, the promise of God fails. Like the story of the Bible's just over. Abraham doesn't become a great nation. His descendants can't, therefore, bring God's blessing to the earth. God just signed the death warrant on his own plan of salvation. How does any of this make sense? Well, there's two things we need to recognize here. First, this is a test. Right? This is a test. The narrator tells us that right away in verse 1. 
God never intended Abraham to kill his son, nor would he have ever permitted it. He is testing Abraham to see whether he fears God or not. Second, the test is real. We know it's a test, but Abraham has no idea. And while he is a man of faith, his faith has not yet been fully tried. And where it has been tested in the story so far, he has not always operated with faith and trust and obedience. And so God asks of him the unimaginable, one climactic test. As one author explains, no more fiery crucible for faith can be imagined. I mean, the cost to Abraham was everything. The whole burnt offering, it was a, it was a symbol of consecration, of offering up to God without reserve or without remainder, a lamb of the flock or an ox from the herd. And, and so, if, if, if we're working through the story and you're still confused, good, you should be. This really does not make sense, that God would ask Abraham to give something so complete, so precious, so instrumental to his whole plan. And, and just to put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a, for a moment, how crushing and, and disorienting would such a command be? Or Isaac's or, or Sarah's if she's aware of it. This is utterly unthinkable. And yet, when we step back, we often find ourselves facing the unimaginable in life, don't we? You know, how many of us have encountered trials that we absolutely never anticipated? Not in a... You know, in our wildest dreams, did I ever think I would have to face this? And yet here we are. And when we find ourselves there, it's very easy to think, what in the world is God doing? Like, how does any of this make sense with his plans? You know, for Carissa and me, the fact that, that we had four kids up, with, up here with us at the Advent lighting a little bit ago, and not just one, is in many ways a miracle of God. Uh, when we were young parents, one of the hardest trials that we ever went through was miscarriage. You know, after Joshua, we were, we were so eager to have a second child, um, never in a million years did we think that might actually be difficult. And yet our second pregnancy ended six weeks in with a miscarriage, which we both said to each other at the time, we can never go through that again. I mean, to, to give a child back to the Lord before we even had a chance to meet them, it was just too hard. And then a few months later, the unimaginable happened. We went through it again. And then when we got pregnant a third time, we were told by the doctors that we would almost certainly encounter the same thing. What could God possibly be doing with something like that? But even when we face the unimaginable in life, it, and this is going to sound trite until you've walked through it and experienced it, even when we face the unimaginable in life, that doesn't mean that God isn't somehow at work in it. There's more to the story here than Abraham and Isaac know. We know there's more. They don't, they don't get to see that yet. And there's more to our stories as well. 
I mean, the grief and the pain are real. But we, we have a very limited view of what God is doing from where we stand. Whereas he, from where he stands, can take the entire thing in and is able to move the entire thing forward, providing what he promises, even if it's different than what we expect. And so what will Abraham do? What will God do? Will Abraham obey, and will God let him? That brings us to the next section, verses 3 to 8, and Abraham's unprecedented faith. So in in, in verses 3 and 4, we see Abraham's immediate obedience. He wastes no time. Like, he begins his preparations right away. He gets up early, he saddles his donkey, he gathers his servants and his son, he cuts the wood for the offering, they set out on their journey. And when they arrive, Abraham makes two statements, uh, first to his servants and then to his son. And depending on how generous you're feeling, one could take these statements as shameless deception or unprecedented faith. Uh, First, he says to the young men in verse 5, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy are going to go over and worship and then come again to you. Now, either he's lying and, 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 you know, basically to keep them from trying to intervene and stop him from what he's about to do, or he truly believes what he just said, that he and Isaac are going to go over there, they're going to worship, he's going to sacrifice Isaac, and then both of them are going to come back, which sounds outlandish. And yet the author of Hebrews, when he looks back on this story in chapter 11, verse 19, interprets Moses's, or excuse me, Abraham's motive in just that very way. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham faced with two seemingly incompatible words from God. Isaac's going to become a great nation and you're going to kill Isaac. Like those two things can't go together. And so he reasons, well, God must be planning to raise Isaac from the dead because I don't know how else he's going to keep his word if both of those things are coming from his mouth. He trusts that God will provide what he promises, even if it doesn't make sense to him. And we see a similar faith in God's provision, uh, faith in God's permission in his conversation with Isaac is uh, Isaac and Abraham are then making their way up to the place of sacrifice. Isaac asks his dad a crushing question. My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? You know, knowing what Abraham knows, how absolutely devastating would it be for his son to ask that question? And Abraham responds, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Which again, could be Abraham lying to keep his son from running the opposite direction. Or it could suggest that Abraham was hoping that God would somehow miraculously intervene. But I think most likely it means that that Abraham is actually speaking more than he realizes here. For Abraham, the lamb that God has provided is the son, a son whom he trusts God to provide back to him when all of this is over. 
Whatever the case, Abraham is indeed a portrait of unprecedented faith, trusting God even when nothing makes sense and following him. Which again is, is a good word for us in our longing for deliverance or in the languishing that we sometimes feel in this fallen world that there's so many times when we will find ourselves feeling trapped. Like we know what God wants us to do, but we cannot see any way how that is possibly a good idea. Whether it's doing something that seems impossible or giving up something that we treasure or holding on to something that we would much rather let go of right now. There are times when obedience to God seems crazy or pointless, but we can trust God to keep his word even when we can't see any possible way forward. And so Abraham and Isaac, they go on together. Will Abraham obey? And will God let him? This brings us to verses 9 to 14 and an unexpected provision. So in verses 9 and 10, we see the culmination of Abraham's faith, really the culmination of Abraham's story in many ways, and that faith is expressed in his obedience. He does what God asks him to do. He builds an altar. He lays out the wood. He then binds his son Isaac and places him on the altar. It's a sober picture. But the author hints here, not just at Abraham's faith, but also at Isaac's willingness. We should not see Isaac here as a toddler or a, or a grade schooler. The word translated boy in verse 5 is the same word that's translated young men when it refers to his servants. So Isaac is almost certainly an adolescent here. He's a, he's a young man, strong enough to carry all of the wood up the hill for the sacrifice. Whereas Abraham is like really, really old, like 110 years plus old. And so the binding here suggests not Isaac's resistance. I mean, how could Abraham overpower him? But his participation in the sacrifice, which shows us Isaac's own remarkable faith. And, and, and taken together, what we see here is that real faith shows itself in obedience. Real faith shows itself in obedience. This is, this is one of the key lessons of this story. When the authors of the New Testament look back on this story in Hebrews 11 and in James 2, this is one of the key things they zero in on, how, how God is testing Abraham and, and he tests his faith by looking for obedience, that real faith shows itself in obedience, which again is a good reminder for us. It's it's very easy to say that I believe in God. It's something quite different to listen to him and obey him and follow him and, and be willing to give everything for him. That's something quite different. Real faith shows itself not in good intentions or empty words, but in obeying God's word, living as though God will truly provide what he promises. And so Abraham offers up his son. He lets him go. He gives him back to God. He takes the knife in his hand, ready to do the unthinkable when God finally intervenes. Verse 11, 
the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham passes the test. As the angel of the Lord describes it, he, he demonstrates his fear of God. Now I know that you fear the Lord, which is a phrase, it's a beautiful phrase that we don't use a whole lot and we often misunderstand it when we do, this idea of fearing God. It's not so much a matter of like being afraid of God, of cowering before him or walking on eggshells like, like he's some sort of unpredictable taskmaster. Rather, it's a picture of reverence and awe, of unreserved worship. To fear God is to recognize that he is God and I am not, and then to treat him with all of the honor and trust and devotion and surrender and awe that he deserves as God. Abraham feared God. He, through his obedience, he demonstrated that his faith was in the God who provides rather than grasping at his provision. He demonstrated that his faith is in the God who provides rather than grasping at his provision. And so Abraham passes the test, and God keeps his word. He does, in fact, provide all that he promises in a way that not even Abraham could imagine. Verse 13, Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God did indeed provide what he promised. He supplies Abraham with a ram for the burnt offering in place of his son. And so Abraham commemorates the Lord's gracious provision. Verse 14, he called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or the Lord will see to it. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. God provides all that he promises. And in scripture, this place, Moriah, comes to signify the place where the Lord provides. And as you might guess, that name has special significance for us if you know our family. When we were facing the prospect of that third miscarriage, uh, all we could really do in that moment was pray. And Carissa was on medicine. The doctors told us the medicine wasn't really working. So all we could do is pray. And in many ways, it's, it's no exaggeration to say our three-year-old son led the way in praying with faith, even when ours was weak. And the Lord, in his grace and his mercy, he provided. He gave us our first daughter, whom we named Mariah, after this story. We can trust God to supply. We can trust God even when we can't see any possible way forward. He hears our prayers and he provides all that he promises Though we must also be honest that sometimes in his inscrutable wisdom, that provision waits for the end when our Lord returns. 
We prayed for all three pregnancies, and the Lord only gave us one. And I don't know why. What I do know is that in the end, God will bring all of his promises to a glorious fulfillment. And that even when he meets us with his provision now, in the moment, there's still more of the story to come. And we see that right here with Abraham's son. There's more of the story to come. The first hint of that is this, this subtle little note that God provides Abraham with a ram instead of a lamb. We were looking for a lamb, and, and, and we had this puzzling little detail. It, it creates this subtle sense that, in a way, Abraham and Isaac are still waiting for the lamb to be provided. But we see it even more clearly in the fact that the story isn't over in verse 14. It could have ended there, but it goes on in verses 15 to 18 to describe an unending legacy. So look with me at, at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and not withheld from me your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. And so here the Lord ties Abraham's faith in his provision to his promise to make him a great nation and bless all nations through his offspring, which means that this story is not over. Even when Abraham and Isaac come down the mountain and return to the, to the young men waiting for him, the story's not over. When Abraham and Isaac are eventually put in the grave, the story's still not over. Because the promise of God goes forward from Isaac to his son Jacob, and from Jacob to his son Judah, and through Judah's descendants to a king named David. And through David's descendants, ultimately to the most unlikely of heirs, a man named Jesus. And when you get to the New Testament and you turn the page and you see the very first verse, Matthew 1.1, the way that we get to meet Jesus in the New Testament story, this is how he's introduced. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's so much more to the story of Genesis 22. And Abraham's faith is clearly an example for us to follow in that story. But even more important than his example is the object of his faith, the Lord who provides. And not just in this story, but the story itself becomes a pattern and a promise for his ultimate provision of the son of Abraham to come. The lamb who will take our place and provide for us the sacrifice that we desperately need before God. It's no accident how the details of Genesis 22, hopefully you noticed some of this as we were 
reading it and working through it. It's no accident how those details both set a pattern and prepare the way for this later, greater son of Abraham to come. An only son who is beloved, who rides a donkey to the place of sacrifice, a place which just happens to be the future home of God's temple in Jerusalem, according to 2 Chronicles 3.1. A son who bears on himself the wooden means of sacrifice to that place, who is bound as a sacrifice yet willingly. The surprise, unexpected provision of a substitute, of, of one who dies in place of others. The lamb that the Lord provided, the lamb that he promised to give Abraham and Isaac that that they were still waiting for, that lamb has come. All that ancient Israel was looking for and waiting for, all that God promised to provide from the restoration of his broken creation to the salvation for all nations, all of it finds its glorious fulfillment in Jesus the son of Abraham. He is the one through whom God's promised blessings come. The apostle Paul puts it bluntly in Galatians 3.16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Jesus was always the point. Friends, it is not just that the Lord will provide. The Lord has provided. He has provided. God provides all that he promises. And he has done so preeminently through his son. And so are we still searching? Are we still searching? Looking here, looking there, looking everywhere except at Jesus, who is our salvation Advent reminds us that God has kept his promises of life and salvation by sending his son, and we can receive that life and become heirs of that promised blessing through faith and only through faith in that son. That's good news. And if that's new news to you, I would love to talk with you after the service. Advent reminds us that God has kept his promises And yet it also reminds us that we're still waiting and longing. We're not searching for an answer, but waiting for its fullness to arrive. And there are thousands upon thousands of ways that God meets us with provision today. Not least the new life that's available through Christ. And yet sometimes in his inscrutable wisdom, that provision does wait Till the end. And so we really truly find ourselves entering into ancient Israel's story as they waited for Christ's first advent. So we wait today for his second. And yet, like Abraham, we can wait with hope and with an unshakable confidence that God will provide, even when nothing makes sense. In fact, we have even greater confidence than Abraham because we get to look back on God's faithfulness of providing the first time, 
knowing he will therefore be faithful to send his son again and with him the fullness of all of his promised blessings. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8. Think of, think of the Genesis 22 story as you listen to God's promise in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has kept his word and he will keep it again. We can be confident that God provides all that he promises and he has done so preeminently in his son. Let's pray. Gracious Father, what more can we say than thank you for your incredible provision? Lord, as we begin this Advent season, as we take up this longing expectation, this waiting, Lord, help us feel our need for a Savior. Help us not shy away from being honest about the darkness of this fallen world, and yet help us fix our eyes on you. Focus our longing on the fact that our search is over when we find the Savior you have sent. Lord, we need you. We look to you. We hope in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.